talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Will Luskin is in the cloud. You gotta love a snow day. At least we can unite over a snow shovel. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Unite out in the street the way we used to with a snow shovel and a hot tie. Get this mess cleaned up. Pretty much across the country. No. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber is on the board in the newsroom. Uh, Lisa and, oh, sorry, no, Diana and uh, Dave, feel free to jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. It is an all-request Friday, heading into a family day weekend. So if uh, you want Will to play 30 seconds of your favorite or record yourself, uh, feel free, 905 Six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred on your cell. All right, um, uh, we've got a jam packed show. <laughs> we've, we've got a jam packed show coming up, and uh, and it just like I have been all morning, uh, mesmerized with what is just going on, and uh, has been going on over the course of the day in uh, our nation's capital, and um, it has been uh, fascinating to say the least. Uh, to watch this uh, start earlier on in the in the morning and then all of a sudden uh, many more police and then many 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 more police uh, arriving uh, all in yellow vests and just uh, literally uh, engulfing the crowd and uh, bit by bit taking back uh, the blocks and streets uh, of Ottawa around Parliament Hill so uh, it, it's been interesting to watch, but it's, you know, I don't know how anybody can look at this and, and feel good about anything that's going on, no matter what side of the debate you're on or, or what you're thinking. Uh, it, it's very sad. It's very sad. Uh, I find it very sad as, uh, you know, a middle-aged guy, <coughs> uh, you know, it, it, that it's come to this. It, it, it's just bizarre, especially as we are a place in the pandemic where restrictions are ending slowly and slowly we are coming out and and learning to live with this endemic and uh you know it, it's it's just bizarre to think that this all started uh way back when um really when things were all you know certainly in ontario it had already been announced what the gradual reopening plan was going to be and, uh, you know, as uh, as the rest of the country has opened up, uh, it, it seems the tension has just heated up in Ottawa. And, you know, to think that this started way back when, three weeks and a day ago, over a mandate uh, of truckers crossing the border into the United States being vaccinated or not vaccinated. Uh, and again, you know, 90% of the trucking industry is vaccinated, just like 90% of the population is. So to think that this all had to get to where it has in, you know, branched out into both extremes, whether it's anarchy on the left or the flag waving, uh, you know, right with the Confederate flag, it's, it's, it's turned into everybody's cause and, and those in the middle. And, you know, it's sad that uh, that that uh, leadership didn't come out early on in this for two weeks. It was virtually ignored by the prime minister. Uh, and, and to me, it just um, it, it reeks of how 
uh, in Ottawa, they're just in a bubble. They're just in a bubble. They have no idea what's going on in the rest of, of the country. And whether it's the prime minister, whether it's uh, Ottawa's mayor or, or their police chief, they just seem to be completely out of touch with with what is going on and, you know, so busy defending their cause and whatever it is that their agenda is that, you know, they just all thought this would go away. So, you know, you think of, uh, of the people's lives that have been affected. You think of the businesses that have been affected. You think of the cost of a maneuver like we're seeing today uh, all initially started because on the way, uh, on the downside of a pandemic when the world is opening up, and I do mean the world, uh, we're arguing over something like this. And again, a 90% vaccination rate. And, you, you know, we're, we're not listening to the other 10%, even though they don't agree with us. And again, when this thing started, Ken Mann was interviewing people along the line in Hamilton, watching this go out three weeks ago. And, you know, talked to the majority of them are vaccinated. It, it wasn't, it was about the the overreach of government. And the fact that the prime minister just sat there and let this fester for two weeks before, oh yeah, maybe we should do something about that. You know, it's, this is what happens. And think of the cost, not only, you know, the physical cost, uh, businesses, families, uh, you know, it's incredible. And all because we had to get every single person vaccinated, which is an impossible task on its own in a democracy. So, you know, it just, it's, to me, it's very, very sad that we had to get to where we are. I think in the end, we had to do this because the prime minister had completely lost control. I mean, let's be honest. The borders are open. It happened in uh, Toronto. It happened in Quebec City. They got over it. Uh, they demonstrated. They went home. This is on our prime minister and his divisiveness and how, whether it's climate change, gender, or, or even vaccination, he's, he's divided a nation. And to hear Christia Freeland come out and say, you know, we have to, we have to uh, unite the country. At least if the prime minister would have said that, maybe perhaps it would have meant something. So uh, we're going to come at this from all angles, including a couple on the ground, which we'll talk about uh, a little later on. John Iveson's going to be joining us. He was down there earlier today as it was uh, all unfolding. Uh, also, our global news reporter on the scene. We will uh, talk to her as well. And hey, uh, the Daytona 500 is this weekend. We're going to talk about that and some new revelations when it comes to vaccine and getting out of this global pandemic uh, that has divided a nation. It is family day weekend, uh, and more importantly, it's the beginning of racing season. Uh, the Daytona 500 is this weekend. Let's bring in Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio host. You hear him every Sunday night right here on CHML and across the planet. Uh, he is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. And we are, we're good. And yeah, this is a, a distraction that we need in light of all the <laughs> really? going on holy races do we need a distraction or what you know races out of a global pandemic eric uh yeah. you know what let me ask you first what, what's it going to be like this season this spring when especially some of the local tracks open up does it look like it's business as usual for this season well we certainly hope so because the last two summers have really really knocked the stuffings out of a lot of local facilities because of uh, a restriction on the capacity now 
you know, it certainly depends on what happens between then and now. And if yeah. the numbers respike, they could shut us down again. I mean, we're, we still haven't come out from under that possibility, yeah. but at least right now the indication is that the speedways that we all go to, uh, whether they're pavement or ash or or, um, or dirt or drag strips or whatever it is, will have unlimited or pretty darn close to it um, attendance this year with most of the restrictions lifted. That, again, is a slave to the numbers, and if the numbers start to trend upwards again, we could be in the same soup. But for right now, uh, all the tracks that we deal with and that we go to are planning to get as close back to normal as they possibly can. Good to hear. Good to hear all around. Yeah. All right. Uh, obviously, uh, those of us that uh, that watch fast cars, uh, the 24 hours of Daytona was a little earlier on, and that sort of uh, gets you torqued up for this. Now uh, we're seeing the NASCAR season, the uh, qualifying races on Thursday, and now the big race on Sunday. Uh, the big storyline here is they've drastically changed the cars again. Yeah. Uh, I shouldn't say again. It's the first time in a few years, but uh, this time with a composite body that very much resembles what the actual streetcar looks like. And, you know, uh, even looking at these things, I love it because you can see, you know, where the actual fenders come out and and even the the trunk lids are smaller and such, like a real car or the car that they're supposed, like the car that they're supposed to be. So what are your thoughts on this? And you did express what was this going to be like on on a super speedway? Well, you know, we're drafting's a factor. So what are your thoughts on what? you've seen so far yeah nobody seems to know exactly what's going to happen we did have the duels last night with the new bodies yeah they do look more closer to uh, a mustang a camaro and a camry than the other ones the the body panels are no longer just sheet steel hung and tack welded onto the frame itself the 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 chromoly tubing and flat yeah all the body sections now come prefabricated from a vendor they're plastic with reinforcement from carbon fiber which is that uh, very very strong and light stuff that uh, indycar and formula one chassis and other exotic race cars are made from one of the benefits of it is is that and we saw it in that uh, exhibition race the, the preseason race of the coliseum very very small track is the fact that you can rub and get into somebody and not have the body panel almost instantaneously cut tires down yeah. which is good so we don't know what's going to happen at a big place like daytona where we we're doing lap after lap after lap of pack racing and what uh, what contact is going to uh, render on these cars and how it's going to affect the competition. That remains to be seen, and we won't know until we turn them all loose. Other changes, too, is they've gone away from the five lug nuts to one center locking hub a la an Indy car or a Formula One car, which means... So what are your thoughts on this, Eric? Because I know well, you're a purist, get, and, yeah. and I'm interested to know what your thought is uh, this going to where, to where they are. Well, here's yeah, what I was going to say is that this now changes the length of the pit stops. Before, we were getting pit stops anywhere from 12 to 14 seconds with less time needed to remove and change the wheels slash tires. Does this mean that you can get all 22 gallons into the cell with a dump can before the pit stop is over? And no one's going to really know until we get into the heat of battle in combat on how that's going to affect things. It is going to affect your fuel mileage. It is going to affect how your strategy works and how many times uh, you come into the pitch. You still don't want to relinquish track position. That'll never change. But the fact of the matter is changing tires has changed, which means the pit stop length will change, which means the fueling will change, which means your fuel strategy will change. Bigger brakes on these cars as well, how they'll perform. Uh, the steering is different on these automobiles. So it's going to be more of a race of watching. Uh, can Kyle Larson win? Can Denny 
Hamlin win another one? Can Joey Logano win another one? You know, Jacques Villeneuve's in the field at the age yeah, of Yeah, how did that another. happen? <laughs> he came out of obscurity and said, I, I, I want to do this. And he's with a very small team based out of Holland, the Hesburgh team. And they allowed six uh, positions from non-franchise teams. These are teams that, that are not full-time NASCAR guys and will not do all the races. And Jacques was quick enough. He'll start at the back. He'll start 40th. But this is cool because he's the first former Formula One champion to even enter and run the Daytona 500. Mario Andretti mm. was not in F1 when he did his back in the 60s. So it's going to be very interesting. But the big thing is how these new cars are going to perform at Daytona. That's going to be the biggest storyline come Sunday. All right, Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio. He'll have it all Sunday night, of course. And uh, the big race starts the season in NASCAR uh, coming up on Sunday. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well, and we'll chat again. Back at you, Scooter. Always enjoy these. We'll do some more. Take care, pal. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Some more good news uh, when it comes to our battle against COVID-19 and getting out of this uh, global pandemic. Uh, and uh, whether it's uh, obviously the trending downward of uh, hospitalization and such, but also uh, another tool in the toolbox, as they say, another vaccination, Novavax, uh, which you might remember uh, Canada entered into a deal with this U.S. company to produce this, uh, I guess, eventually in Montreal. Uh, but it has now, their vaccine has now been authorized for use in adults in Canada. To talk about that and where we are, let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, Assistant Professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Guy. Happy to be here. Uh, first, Doctor, let's talk about where we are, where the country is. We're slowly starting to see provinces announce opening up, uh, you know, plans and such as, 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 uh, as, uh, uh, hospitalizations slowly start to drop. Your thoughts about where we are in, in our progress to date? It's great that we're seeing cases drop. That's fantastic news to see that the hospitalization rates are okay. That's also excellent news. Now, I have to be an engineer and tell you about the other sides, the other risks. And mm -hmm. whenever we have case numbers that were high, that means that our chances of having created a new mutation is higher. So we're going to be on the lookout to see if anything else is coming up. And hopefully we're not still stuck in that cycle. But so far, so good. Uh, any idea how many of us became infected with the Omicron virus? I mean, you know, we could keep track for a while and then obviously it overwhelmed the testing capacity and such. When do you think we'll find out a, a rough idea of, of what percentage of the population has had it? I think it's fair to assume that it's going to be endemic so that most people are going to get it, and which is why we see this thing of the testing capacity. It just spread it's so fast and that was yeah. the problem with that mutation so uh are we on the correct trajectory then uh do we do you feel confident where we are today with slowly getting out of this and and you know uh, easing protocol and such with the schedules that we're on i think this is a slightly complicated answer <laughs> we we've seen a cycle like this before we've done well We've opened up and then something else pops up and then we have to go back in you know more measures but we are in a very very different place now yeah. we have uh the potential for updated vaccines like moderna and pfizer are working on things that are better for you know omicron and delta which is fantastic 
and with this Novavax coming out too. So as long as we can get this out, and this can actually move us into a spot where we're, it's more like the seasonal flu vaccine where, mm-hmm. you know, you can get this updated and then get your annual vaccine. And then eventually we might not even need it, not, not even need that. And we'll be in a better place. But if, if we can uh, get those updated vaccines out soon, and then also dodge a bullet with this, with, uh, without seeing any new mutations, we're going to be okay. So let's talk about Novavax because uh, we remember the when this started in uh, with Pfizer and Moderna, the mRNA vaccines w- were what everyone was talking about. It was cutting edge. Where is Novavax? How does it compare to these? Novavax is made using a technology that's you know very uh, much older but well understood as well. So very good. It's the spike protein and in solution, and you inject it. So a bit. You know, unlike it's not an mRNA, you don't need the mRNA to then make the spike protein. This is ready to go. So that gets injected. The fantastic thing about it is that Canada already has the know-how and capacity to build these types of vaccines. So now that it's been approved, we have the opportunity to contribute more to the global effort by producing these and getting them out so that everyone can enjoy protection. Why work on, um, or, or, or what is the advantage to the type of vaccine that Novavax is or the mRNA? What's the advantage over one to the other, or is there? Uh, one of the big advantages is actually logistics. You can actually store and ship Novavax between 2 and 8 degrees Celsius. So yeah. it doesn't need to be frozen. And with this, we have this opportunity to get it out to you know, lower middle income countries, that mm-hmm. don't have the same infrastructure, the great infrastructure that Canada has, to be honest. And in that case, we can get a lot more people protected. And of course, more people protected means less people staying infected and less viral replication, which all leads to slower mutations. And that keeps our, our current vaccines more effective for longer. What is uh, comparing Novavax to, say, AstraZeneca? Similarities, differences? Well, AstraZeneca used that uh, uh, a modified virus to deliver instructions right. to make the spike protein. Novavax is just simply the spike protein uh, and in solution. So that is the one of the big difference. It's already ready to go. And um, the other thing is that with Novavax, because the trials, the clinical trials were a bit later, they were actually trialed during a time when we had Delta uh, out there in right. in a large amount. So and the clinical trial data showed that it, it actually works very well against Delta. So this is all promising, especially since Omicron has a few similarities to Delta. So these all kind of trend in the right direction. We'll see. But in the end, it's, it's just another excellent tool. And so far, you know, all the clinical data shows it's very safe. And it can even be co-administered with your flu vaccine. So a lot of great things. Uh, what about uh, uh, efficacy, uh, efficacy of Novavax compared to the others? It's actually right up there. Um, mm-hmm. So against things like Delta, Beta, and even Alpha, it's around 90% efficacious against severe disease. So right up there with the best of the best of mRNA and, and AstraZeneca when it was compared fighting Alpha and the wild type version. But yeah, it's... It's a great option, to be honest. If, if you're waiting, this is fantastic. 
So, and very important in vaccinating the rest of the world, as you said, because yes, of it, this it, is what, it, because it can be transported a lot easier. Transport a lot easier. And this is what breaks us out of the cycle, right? Because we yeah. can do a great job here in Canada, but if something pops up elsewhere, we're back to the same problem. Let's break that cycle. We're, we're done with this. <laughs> And what about ability to alter these uh, vaccines as they're needed moving forward, much like a flu shot, uh, much like they're talking about with the uh, mRNA vaccines, same thing with Novavax, same type of... Not, uh, not necessarily as easy as it would be for the mRNA vaccine, because the advantage of the mRNA vaccine is that, you know, mRNA, you just need to change a few sequences, and it's pretty much the same with a protein it, it may take some extra steps because you have to, you know, modify it, then have it manufactured. And, you know, one uses uh, a factory to produce the protein, whereas mRNA uses your body to produce the protein. So, you know, it's just where you want the protein manufactured. But uh, so there, there may be some additional challenges. And we saw that that was one of the issues that Novavax had. They had their production challenges of getting high quality, consistent stuff out uh, all the time and and they cracked those challenges they solved them and now they're ready to go so hopefully if there is an update that novavax needs to make they've already worked out all of their manufacturing uh, challenges and can quickly make something new dr omar khan with us assistant professor institute of biomedical engineering and department of immunology university of toronto uh, novavax on the scene now approved in canada and better because it will help uh get those in hard to reach uh countries uh, vaccinated which will eventually end all of this doctor thanks for the time be well thanks take care bye when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Want to give you an update about what's going on in Ottawa. And unfortunately, every time we try to plan this around a news conference, we all we always manage to uh, grab Rachel Gilmore, online journalist with Global News, just as one is going on, uh, as opposed to after it. So uh, we apologize again, Rachel. Uh, but your your thoughts on what you have seen transpire today in the nation's capital and where we are. Yeah, so it seems like they are um, making up some serious ground, clearing some significant areas in downtown Ottawa. I mean, as you just mentioned, there is a police update going on right now. So I'm sure that as soon as I get off <laughs> chatting with you, you'll find out some more information that'll probably be even more helpful in that respect. But um, I can tell you from what I can see from my window, um, the cops have really sort of pushed the protests up a couple blocks and uh, they've moved it in kind of from every direction, most significantly from that center town area, um, which is sort of directly downwards from Parliament Hill. Um, in terms of the sort of main downtown drag by uh, Canada's uh, or Ottawa's biggest mall there, um, they have managed to push up a couple blocks up to the war memorial. So that is a pretty significant, uh, you know, chunk there where people have been really entrenched for some time. Cops are moving shoulder to shoulder and warning people that if they haven't moved out of the way by the time that line meets them, then they will be arrested. Uh, we've been watching this over the course of the morning, and uh, it, it's unbelievable to watch. Uh, but for the most part, it's been very methodical, and, and there doesn't seem to be uh, a, a lot of resistance. Is that what you're getting uh, the feeling there as well? 
For the most part, absolutely. And if you'll allow me, actually, there's just some breaking news from this press conference. 70 people have been arrested. That is quite a jump from the 21 that we had seen even just an hour ago in the police update. So a number of arrests being made, but as you mentioned, largely peaceful. We have seen, uh, you know, most protesters just kind of putting their hands behind their backs, getting their cuffs on and walking off. Although I will tell you that there were a few instances, and I would say that these are the exception, not the rule, where things did get really tense between the cops and a protester. I even saw one thrown to the ground and things got a little aggressive there um, before they were cuffed. So uh, for the most part, peaceful, but there were a few exceptions to that. Uh, obviously, we were seeing a massive police presence from all over Ontario and Quebec, RCMP as well. Um, and as you mentioned, they seem to be literally surrounding them block by block. What happens when this all comes to a head or gets to the center point? Point, which especially out right in front of the parliament buildings yeah i mean it, it's hard to say um that is where the most kind of hardcore entrenched group has been so that is the point where we may see some conflict if any um i think we're all hoping for a nice peaceful resolution many organizers and members of the protest are calling for a peaceful resolution themselves so hopefully everyone listens to that but um, you know, that is that sort of core area where people have been dug in for some time, and I don't think they'll give it up that easily. Uh, are, are, do, you, do you see this going into the weekend? Do you think we're going to see this heavy police presence in Ottawa through the weekend? I wouldn't be surprised if it does continue, mainly because a lot of the protesters, as recently as last night, this morning, were telling people to come to Ottawa. I actually saw on the Facebook page for the so-called Freedom Convoy, they told uh, they, they had issued a set list for what the performances were going to be on that little stage that they set up in front of Parliament Hill tonight. Oh, so a number of people have been coming up to party every weekend, more or less. And uh, I, I think that cops are going to be hanging around a little bit to make sure that those that they clear don't just come right back. All right, Rachel Gilmore with us, national online journalist with Global News, telling us what's going on on the ground in Ottawa. And, of course, uh, the police chief speaking now. Rachel, we'll let you get back to that. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Once this is over, and it is going to end, to come together and really to heal our country. There are a lot of big challenges in the world today. And it's going to be really important for us to be able to face those challenges as a country. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, teacher. Uh, man, I cannot believe uh, that is the words coming out of Christia Freeland today. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. All request Friday edition of Will Weber's on the board. Waiting for your call if you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite. Uh, the phone line's always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900chml.com. Uh, Christa, Christia Freeland coming out and saying we all must come together is as um, uh, uh, hypocritical as it gets, considering just the other day in the House of Commons, her boss was stating Canada is very united and then quoted our high vaccination rate. And I don't know how you can equate the high vaccination rate with Canada being united, um, but now completely selling a different message. 
Uh, and again, for the first two weeks, uh, nobody listened to what was going on uh, in Ottawa, whether it was the prime minister or local officials in Ottawa or anybody. And then after two weeks, when they realized they weren't going to pack up the bouncy castle and go away, all of a sudden we are where we are. And um, again, the divisiveness in this country is, um, is, is palatable. You can cut it with a knife. And now at least it appears that the government is recognizing the divisiveness. Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm Scott. Can you hear me? I can hear you very well. Can you hear me? Yes, I was a little bit worried about that. So, no, you sound as beautiful as ever. So, oh, you know, I, I found it just—I uh, just found it absolutely stunning that Christia Freeland is trying to be parental or, or the teacher in the class of grade two students and saying we all must now come together. Boy, you know, if her boss had just said that three weeks ago, we may not be where we are now. You know, I have to agree. Everybody kind of stuck their head in the sands here or else they aligned themselves at the wrong time in the wrong place with the wrong cause. So I think people thought, well, they're going to come and then they're going to go. And I'm not sure whose thinking that was. I'm sure that, you know, Trudeau was obviously surrounded by advisors who give him all sorts of opinions. And maybe they chose not to react because they just felt the situation was too incendiary. I don't know. I was there. But really, um, you're absolutely right, Scott. I think they should have come out loud and clear at the very beginning and diffused what has really turned into an untenable situation. Well, almost untenable situation. How does Christia, and again, it's amazing that it's her delivering these words and not the prime minister himself, who I don't think we've heard about, uh, uh, heard from in the last couple of days. But I find it fascinating that she's coming out and delivering this come together unity message when they've already been selling that the country is unified. How, how do you explain this change of tone? And what do you, what, what do you think we're going to see from, from this uh, uh, government moving forward on the tone of all of this? First of all, I think they have to get their narrative down pat and how they want to present this situation going forward. Because whenever you are engaged in a, a crisis situation, and this one is clearly of enormous proportion, whenever you're engaged in that, after it's done, you want to change the channel. So perhaps, you know, as you so rightly uh, point out, Scott, you said, you know, this is a different tone. Yes, it is. It's coming from a different voice. It's coming from a female voice. And it's coming from Christian Freeland, who, as far as I'm concerned, does everything but be prime minister. So therefore, by choosing her as delivering the narrative, it's giving a different tone. It's providing perhaps... Um, you know, a different uh, type of way of understanding what the narrative is. And right now there's a, you know, in some parts of the country and among many Canadians or some Canadians that there is a lot of animosity right now being hurled at Prime Minister Trudeau. So as a result, sort of take the, the target out of the equation, replace it with somebody who is just as credible keep on the same message track but have it delivered by somebody else hmm. um you saw what happened today how are we gonna how are canadians gonna view all this well if you look at the recent polls scott about 68 percent of canadians or close to 70 percent of canadians were like we're done these people yeah. need to be removed yeah. 
And the large proportion of those same Canadians also wanted uh, our politicians to be a little bit more vigorous in removing this. And they were tired and, and quite frankly shocked that it had gone on so long. So I think that people are thinking, oh, this is a watershed moment. In many cases, it is, it is a watershed moment. But I think some things have to be made quite clear. We need to stop calling these people truckers. Okay, that is just smearing the good name of truckers who good do point. their jobs day in and day out. These are not truckers. These are incendiary people who have no, um, you know, their their whole philosophy is to overthrow the government. Very, you know, very, very simple. And, you know, for whatever goodwill that they had initially wrapped themselves in with this uh, convoy, talking about freedom, talking about uh, dropping of mandates, that whole narrative, it worked and it worked really well. I mean, you saw the emotive videos just like I did. But what about the, the videos of, uh, you know, munitions, and ammo and guns coming yeah, across the yeah. border? So what about that? You so, know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if by the time they get the uh, the trucks cleared out of the downtown core and the equipment, if uh, these mandates will have run their course anyway. And this was all for naught. You know, perhaps. Uh, you know, I have I have to really believe that. You know, Doug Ford you know, started removing his mandates as a way of, well, if I do it, maybe they'll all just go away. And uh, I have a, I have a good election coming up in June. So maybe I should just do it now to me. Yeah. But was- let's not forget, let's not forget Alessa. Those were all announced after Christmas. All I did was bump the last one up uh, four days. Okay, Unfor- but still, but still, Unfortunately, I, mean, I-, I mean, our own premier is spouting misinformation about, about COVID. So all due I respect, I think I'm getting, getting all due respect. I, I have a hard time blaming any of the provinces for this. To me, this all lies on the soft shoulders of our prime minister and the Ottawa mayor and the former police chief. Gotta let you go. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It's been fascinating to watch. I don't know if you've been watching this over the course of the day. I've been pretty much glued to it. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, it's my job. <laughs> but it's been fascinating to watch how... Uh, the police have, uh, you know, earlier on this morning, I mean, they were reinflating the bouncy castle, enough said there. Uh, and then very, very quickly at around mid morning, uh, all of a sudden, uh, police arrived in, uh, in yellow, uh, vests, sort of speak. And man, there were lots of them. And the situation quickly changed to talk about, uh, how it is all uh, unraveling and, uh, or sorry, moving forward. It's been pretty uh, peaceful for the most part. Uh, let's bring in Sean Sparling, retired deputy chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently the president of Investigative Solutions Network and with us now. Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, everything's good. Thank you for having me today. What are your thoughts as you've seen things uh, move on in Ottawa and how this has been handled so far? Well, I know there's been a lot of criticism about Ottawa police and their handling of it and how long this has taken, but just dealing with what I'm watching today, I'm very impressed with how well this is organized, the staffing levels that they have. This is a textbook operation they're doing, and they really need to be congratulated with how this is going. It's uh, it's a, it's being done very well. It's amazing to watch how they sort of came from all different angles on this. And, um, you know, as I was watching it unfold, uh, it appeared there was a line of officers. And then as they slowly pushed uh, people back, as they methodically do, then all of a sudden they started showing up in the on, on the side streets and, and, and containing them, per se. Talk a little bit about that and, and, and the process and, and just even the methodical nature of it all. 
Yeah, it's very methodical, and that's it's planned like that. So what I can see from the uh, the videos I've been watching, there's a number of public order units that are there. I see the OPP public order unit. It looks like Metro. Then there's uh, quite a few uh, tactical teams there, and you see they have uh, quite a few armored vehicles. And they would have that all very well planned. Like you said, they started off on the side streets. They, uh, they, they had a plan where they shut down about 100 intersections and checkpoints and whatnot. So they controlled the outer perimeter first. And now they set up an inner perimeter, and that inner perimeter is where they're uh, they're slowly, uh, basically choking it off, and they're encircling it, and that's where they're seeing the. Uh, I think we're going to see a, quite a few more arrests come from. Is basically those uh, those kind of the the diehard uh, protesters that are still there, they're inside that uh, that control zone now, and uh, they, and the the police have very good control of the area around there. Uh, they also gave a day or so notice handing out uh, uh, information and such. Here's what's going on. This is the Emergency Act, and you got to get out of here. Uh, talk about the lead-up time to this and then eventually making it happen. Right. So part of the planning was to give those warnings, get many as many people out of there as possible, try and get those, some of those children out of there. And it's, uh, it's interesting, uh, just this morning I was in Thunder Bay and I saw some of the convoy heading back west uh, for, uh, from Saskatchewan with the uh, with their protests uh, signs on still in the trucks and they're heading home back out west. And so that was uh, done uh, very purposely by the police to get as many people out of there as possible and just deal with the hardcore ones that, you, that are left there to deal with. Many are wondering why they would let people who had been, um, you know, holding the the city for three weeks just drive away. But just because they're trying to clear the place out doesn't mean they know where they are or who they are and how to find them. Uh, Is that accurate? Exactly. Yeah. You're going to see arrests uh, go on for quite a while with this. I saw that they targeted the the protest organizers right out of the gate, which was uh, well done. Uh, Basically take off the head of this. Um, And then they started some very targeted arrests. And uh, I would expect, even when this is over, and my guess is this is still going to take a day or two to come to an end, um, the, uh, you'll still see arrests afterwards. Uh, you talked about uh, arresting the leaders, which uh, I guess last night and earlier today. How important is it to take out those two or three main people who were the voice? Well, absolutely. You don't want them standing up in the media or social media and agitating people any more than anybody else can. They're the leaders and the spokespersons. First off, they got to be held accountable for what they're doing and also to uh, to make a statement to everybody else that you've taken out their leadership and it's important that they go first. And they did that. But I also noticed, too, is that uh, the, the arrests uh, happened uh, very quickly. So it's quite obvious that the uh, the police are taking uh, are keeping very good tabs on these folks. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's uh, other uh, organizers in the background that are going to get arrested in this before it's done. Uh, one of the issues with this dragging on so long was it seemed that every weekend uh, it would be like a trailer park. It would multiply in size. Uh, they've seemed to be able to keep others out of the city. Uh, how important was that? Or is obviously this just sending a message? Don't come down here. We mean business. Yeah, well, the, obviously the, the, the messaging, messaging early on wasn't uh, uh, well received by the protesters. They just kept coming. Uh, but now what, with the, what Ottawa has done and shut down all these key intersections and created these checkpoints, they're keeping people purposely out of that downtown. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, uh, I would expect that's going to stay in place for a little while after this is all done. Um, and they're going to keep a good contingent of officers and very visible in that area um, uh, for, for a number of days. So there's not a repeat and not uh, some sort of uh, resurgence of this. 
Um, like they, they've created a, a no-go zone in that downtown area right now. Um, and it's going to keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller until they clean people out. But you're going to see a very heavy police presence remain for quite a while. Uh, obviously, as you said, they're, they're sort of surrounding them and then moving them closer and closer into the center, uh, uh, per se. Uh, we see the lineup of trucks and freight on Wellington Street in front of Parliament Hill, where that seems to be ground zero, where they're all meeting. What do you think is going to happen once they get to that point and there's nowhere else to go? Well, there's going to be, uh, they're going to keep trying to use as little force as possible. I would expect there's going to be some level of force required. Like uh, there was some reporting today that they, they had to uh, forcibly enter a uh, trailer to arrest some people. So they had mm-hmm. to actually break into the trailer and get in. They're going to be all prepared for that. I see tactical officers uh, walking around. At the uh, They're going to have very specialized gear to get into these trucks. It's not going to be an issue for them to get in there. They're going to want to do it uh, safely and with as little force as necessary. But they're prepared to do it. This is uh, They're not fooling around now. And the, uh, the, the what they've planned to do is to end this. And it's, they're going to end it. It's going to happen here. Sean Sparring, our Sparling with us, retired Deputy Chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently President of Investigative Solutions Network. Sean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. So, uh, remember when we used to talk about the United States and uh, how bizarre their situation would get? I wonder how they're thinking about us right now. Let's bring in Dr. Rodney Rohde, professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Physicians, Texas State University, and with us now, Rodney, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So, Rodney, where is the U.S. right now? Uh, we haven't talked in a while as far as this whole uh, pandemic. Uh, uh, Canada slowly, the provinces anyway, slowly starting to relax a uh, protocol and, and come up with a plan to get out of this. Where is the United States right now? Yeah, I think if you look at us right now, I think we're kind of in that in that moment of decision uh, with respect to relaxing things. You can kind of start seeing those conversations are happening in different states and different localities about uh, possible relaxing, you know, different things, whether it's mask or or getting uh, back together in certain situations. The the current status of what's happening um, with the virus right now. If you look at different sources, about 130,000 Americans uh, are still being infected, still over a couple thousand a day. And um, so, and again, that's not good, but it's certainly better than the 5,000 per day and, you know, several hundred thousand uh, that we were seeing just months ago. So Omicron is, that variant seems to have plateaued and it's starting to at least plateau and come down. Uh, there's a, I think one of the things you'd mentioned about earlier, um, uh, the study coming out of the uh, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation here in the U.S. that they used a, some data that is showing about 73% of the Americans are immune to Omicron. Hmm. And kind of an interesting study, if you dig into it, um, they're basically looking at um, some different factors around that to calculate that. I don't totally disagree with it, but it's a very different thing to calculate because um, there's an overwhelming probably number of people that have not reported uh, that type of uh, positivity just because they yeah. didn't know they were infected. It was so mm. such an asymptomatic or very symptomless of uh, infection that they're not sure. But anyway, that that's the report. About 73% of Americans are 
immune uh, to that variant, Scott. But what people forget sometimes is that if you look at the overall numbers for the United States uh, through the CDC and all the other state health departments that are reporting, about 64% are fully vaccinated. Mm. Uh, and that's about 213 million Americans. So we still have about 100 million people or so that are not fully vaccinated, fully boosted. So there's still some um, immune issues there for us going forward. What does it say, doctor, when, uh, you know, some studies, as you've just mentioned, say there's a 73 percent uh, immunity rate, yet your vaccination rates at, at, at you know, 10 percent below that? You know, it, it says that we didn't do a good job of getting people vaccinated quickly and across, um, you know, a, a huge piece of population. Obviously, the United States is quite large. I know Canada has actually been more successful in getting higher rates of vaccination uh, done. But I think if you look across the globe, one of the early things that happened, and there's a number of factors, obviously, that that caused this, you know, including roll out a vaccine and having you know a good way to ramp that up and to scale but without getting a large percentage of even a region or a country vaccinated immediately say back when the vaccines first came out if we could have gotten even 75 80 percent of the people vaccinated in that first rollout we probably wouldn't be seeing this kind of ongoing problem um, at least that's what most experts think and i i tend to agree by leaving big pockets of people unvaccinated, it gave the virus and continues to give the virus an opportunity to mutate and to become a new variant. And so, you know, the the question of herd immunity is going to be one we continue to argue. I think we can get there if we can ever get to 90%, whether it's through vaccination, uh, through infection, actually living through the infection or a combination. Um, It's just when is the question <laughs> when will we get there you know hopefully it's interesting rod it's it's interesting rodney you're talking about if you could get to 90 percent either vaccination or immunity we're pretty close there and we're still arguing and fighting about it it's just absolutely yeah. bizarre dr rodney really uh, dr rodney Rody with us professor and chair of the clinical laboratory science program at the college of health physicians texas state university for a u.s perspective as always rodney thanks for the time be well you bet take care have a great weekend You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. John Iveson is with us from the National Post. John, I understand you've been out uh, on the streets of Ottawa. What are your thoughts about what's going down? Yeah, well, it looks like this is is the end. They do mean business. Um, The cops are, there's Ottawa Police, OPP, uh, SQ from Quebec. There may be RCMP there as well. I haven't seen them, but... uh, they are there in numbers. They're kettling the demonstrators. Uh, for anybody who knows Ottawa, they're uh, um, at, at the point where Wellington turns into Rideau Street and Sussex cuts across to become Colonel By. There are cops coming from all directions, and they're just moving the protesters slowly, just in increments. They'll move forward. They'll push the demonstrators back. Anybody who gets too boisterous, they'll arrest, and then they'll keep going. And, and they're backed up behind one set of uh, Ottawa police. There were uh, eight horses and uh, an armored car. So they, they're there in force. We're already starting to see some trucks leaving Parliament Hill. Um, you know, they're, they're fully armed with tear gas. I suspect that the tear gas might might fly at some point. Uh, the crowd is still seemingly in denial. 
I mean, there are people saying, well, they can't arrest us. We're not doing anything wrong. We're peacefully demonstrating. Well, you know, clearly under the Emergencies Act, mm. they have been warned that they are in breach of the peace. So, you know, I do expect that uh, one way or another, this situation is going to resolve itself today. And it looks like, as you mentioned, it's been quite methodical by police. There have been the odd disruptions and such, but for the most part, they seem to have it all under control. Well, so far. Yeah, I mean, so far. <laughs> as I was as I was uh, leaving Sussex and uh, and Rideau, just to come back to our office in, in downtown for, for a bite to eat, um, there were a lot of people who were heading down towards where all the cops are. So we may see some uh, we may see some some incidents down there. I don't I haven't seen anything yet though. And and the mood is, you know, they're singing "O Canada," they're shouting "Freedom." But there's been no attempt at at, um, at violence that I saw, um, and the cops have been relatively restrained so far. I mean, I've seen many protests where both sides lost completely lost control, and it ends up in a melee. There are no signs of that yet. What do you expect once uh, they seem to be putting a perimeter around everybody and then moving towards uh, Wellington Street, where the heart of this is uh, right in front of Parliament? Uh, how, yeah. do you, how, how, do you, how far are they from that now? How do you see that panning out? Well, I mean, they're, they're literally 200 yards from yeah. now. Yeah. Um, you know, if, you, if anybody knows Parliament Hill, at the bottom of Parliament Hill, there's the Chateau Laurier, and that's where they are. That's where the uh, the SQ is there in force. The Surette de Quebec, and they've got riot gear, and they've got tear gas, and they're not here to deliver the mail. Yeah. Uh, what is the feeling in Quebec now that, or sorry, in Ottawa now that this is all happening? Now that uh, citizens are seeing movement. Well, I think that they, you know people have been demanding action. Now they're getting action. Um, you know, if the action is too extreme then people might, you know, there might be a backlash against it. I think for now, most people will be supportive. It is disconcerting to see, you know, but these are not professional protesters. Yeah. You know, I covered the protests at the G7, and those that was a bunch of troublemakers. Yet everybody's uh, saying, John, that this is professional well, and professionally I, I, funded. I, I mean, there is, there is probably a hardcore... Somewhere. I haven't seen them. I think they're keeping their powder dry and they're really uh, not at the forefront of this, as far as I can see. I mean, most of these people are misguided. I think they're wrong. They should go home. But they've been kind of duped, I think. Mm. You know, I think that they've been, that they're frustrated and they think they're speaking on behalf of the people and they're, say, they're reclaiming freedom. You know, all the opinion polls show that. Two thirds to three quarters of Canadians want them to go home. So they're not speaking on behalf of the people, they're speaking on behalf of themselves. And I think it's going to end badly for, for a whole bunch of them. They're going to find out that their bank accounts are frozen or their insurance for their vehicle is, is suspended or any other number of, of consequences, or obviously they're arrested. John, well, obviously, obviously over three weeks now, uh, how do we get to this point? I mean, how was, whether it's the Prime Minister, whether it's the Ottawa Police Force or the Mayor, how did this simmer from the first day to what it is now? I, I just think that there was a large section of the population, a large section, clearly the majority of people got vaccinated. But there are a lot of people with frustrations. I mean, if, if you look at some of the polls, the sympathies 
on some of the issues here, you know, are 30, 40, 50 percent almost. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people feel that they were just ignored and the the people who are on, on the hill here feel like they've been shunned and shunted out of society, essentially. And... Where, where, how do, what do we learn from this moving forward? What, what do we do to unite this country? Well, it's not standing up in Parliament and talking about swastikas, that's for sure. Hmm. As the Prime Minister did the other day. I, I honestly think that he, while he's on the right side of this, as far as public opinion at the moment, I think he wears a lot of it, and I think it will leave a mark. And it may be that he has to go before the country can start healing. How long do you think this will go? Will this be over in, you know, say by uh, tonight or the weekend, do you think? Well, there's a lot of trucks up there. Um, it's not clear to me how you would move some of those trucks. Could you tow them? I guess you could. We've got enough tow trucks. But um, I think the bulk of the protest will be shifted tonight, and, and, and that will be that. You know, there may be some remnants. But, I mean, there's no way that the force that the, the cops have come in with, that they're going to back down now. It'll be fascinating to know, John, how much this all ends up costing in the end by you look at all the police well, uh, services and such. It's not come cheaply, that's for sure. In, uh, in, any, in any sense of the word. John Iveson has been with us. You can read his uh, material and uh, his view on what has happened today in your National Post. John, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Bye. Today, uh, in the House of Commons, there was supposed to be a debate on the Emergencies Act. Uh, Emergencies Act. However, since, uh, of course, the, the police exercise that's going on now in, in trying to break up and corral the protesters, uh, they thought that it was best that that not happen today. Uh, last thing you need is by a, a bunch of politicians in there while there's uh, all this other action going on uh, just outside the doors. What does that mean for the Emergencies Act? Does it matter? It's already being used now. Let's bring in Andrew McDougall, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto, and with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I have always a pleasure. Uh, were you surprised to hear that the uh, debate on the Emergencies Act was uh, postponed, uh, obviously due to the uh, the police activity that's going on there today? Yeah, not at all. I have to admit, uh, when I woke up this morning and found out that they had decided to postpone Parliament, um, you know, this morning, I thought that that frankly made a lot of sense. I mean, we have been yeah. expecting for the last couple of days that the police were going to move in. The Emergencies Act has now been, you know, enforced now for, you know, for a couple of days. And so people have been waiting to see what the police were going to do. And when that announcement came uh, and, and, you know, they had announced that they wanted this weekend to be different, right? They wanted this weekend to be a little bit, um, a lot different for Ottawa than, than the last ones had been. And so, you know, we're, you know, it's Friday at this point, so they were going to have to move pretty quick. So when they made that announcement, it was pretty clear that the police were, the action was imminent and it seemed like a very wise precaution to, to empty out parliament. So clear this up for us, Andrew, because obviously it does not have to be uh, voted on before um, it gets implemented because it was implemented a couple of days ago. The vote wasn't supposed to happen today. What is the significance of the vote? What is the process that happens here? Yeah, the, the act has got a whole bunch of, of uh, procedural safeguards in it, and it was sort of a reaction to the earlier legislation that it replaced, which was the War Measures Act, um, the last time an emergency like this was declared in Canada, which was in 1970 in, in 
reaction to the FLQ crisis. Uh, and although it was a very popular move at the time, uh, afterwards there was a you know there was a great deal of consensus that uh, there may have been a, a level of government overreach uh, during that event. There were a lot of people that were rounded up and were arrested without charge. Uh, it was seen as uh, an abuse of, of people's civil liberties. I mean, there's still a debate about it, but there was this sense that uh, you know the next time an emergency came around, maybe there could be some more protections that were put into place to avoid the same thing from happening. And so the Emergencies Act of 1988 included a number of those, so that even though it was uh, in force, as soon as the you know emergency was declared, it required you know a parliamentary debate that we've been talking about, but other things as well, including an inquiry that's going to come out of this to explore why an emergency was declared at all. And there were other provisions, uh, such as, for example, if there's a, an emergency only in one province, then you know it requires more than just a consultation, but the consent of the province uh, to um, you know to allow federal action to go in. So there were these sorts of safeguards that were there. Uh, so the fact this is going to happen, there's all of these are going to be triggered, and we're going to review it. But the fact that we're not having it today is not something I think anybody is particularly surprised at or worried about. It was you know necessary to make sure for everybody's safety that uh, that Parliament was uh, was empty so that the police could do their job. Makes total sense. When uh, do you think they will uh, get together to debate this? What happens if after that happens, it's voted down? Does it matter if if the you know, if it's not needed anymore and the protests have, have, have ended? Yeah, I mean, you're getting into a level of granularity here. I'd have to go back and be absolutely sure before I could confirm mm-hmm. that for you. I haven't, for example, seen the timeline of when they're going to come back, but it is within a couple of days they're going to have to 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 do this, to, to have this debate. Uh, Parliament ultimately could, if they don't approve it, then it's Parliament's call here. Um, but I, at this point, I, even though the Conservatives aren't supporting it, uh, I believe uh, they are going to have enough support to get it through. Uh, And as you mentioned, uh, as soon as the Emergencies Act is triggered, it automatically means when it's all over and things settle down that there's an inquiry automatically. How important is that? I think that's going to be very important, to be honest uh, with you. There is a huge debate that's going on right now about whether or not this is a justified action. And there's a, you know, there's a, a, a level of opinion out there that, you know, thinks that the police had more than enough powers going into this. The, you know, the, gov- the government had more than enough powers generally to, to manage this situation. And so what really more was needed to declare an emergency? This, I mean, this act is, you know, kind of associated with, you know, wars, uh, you know, true, uh, true disasters, where it's kind of a last resort, there really isn't anything beyond the Emergencies Act that the government can trigger. So what was what was necessary for this situation? And, and some people feel like this is maybe going a little bit too far. Now, everyone's been kind of running to sort of catch the bus that hit them because nobody expected hmm. this to to happen. So a lot of it has been, uh, you know, kind of revolved around the instruments that have come out after this to find out what it was they were asking for. And it looks like, you know, there was a lot of concern about the logistics. Uh, there was a lot of concern about how the protests were being funded, in particular around cryptocurrencies, which maybe the government didn't quite have the powers that they felt that they needed. In the These sorts of, the Emergencies Act basically allows for more specific actions to be taken to a specific emergency. So it's not sort of general laws that might be of application, but say, look, we can clear out a specific area and do whatever we need to do to, to deal with the situation. And, you know, here we have a lot of jurisdictions that are kind of overlapping with the national capital region we've got ottawa we've got you know other provinces that may be involved and of course we had the border stuff that really i think was really sort of the focus on this when the ambassador bridge was shut down so this sort of you know made it very clear that they were going to deal with this this specific crisis but 
now the inquiry is going to get into what it was they were facing and why they felt they needed these extra powers and why the powers that they had were not going to be sufficient. And there's going to be some very tough questions about that. And I think it's too early to decide whether or not they, uh, you know, they really need to do this or not. But it's something that, uh, that everyone's waiting to hear more about. Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law with the University of Toronto, talking about the protocol around the Emergencies Act. Andrew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. What's going on along the border of Russia and uh, Ukraine? Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, host of Just Ask the Question podcast, and author of the new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. How are you doing? Staying out of trouble? No. I'm trying to, um, and I'm far away from Ottawa, so that's a good thing. Just want to know how that's playing down there. I, I can even see the late-night uh, uh, comedy shows doing something. How is how is the situation in Ottawa playing in the United States? Well, it depends on who you talk to. If, if you talk to the right wing, it's uh, uh, Putin and uh, socialists and Nazis taking over your government and the repressive, horrible government of of, uh, of Trudeau. But if, you, if everybody else is just reporting it as news, and it's not too unfamiliar to those of us on this side of uh, on the southern side of that border we've uh, experienced a lot of that over the last few years that type of protest so it's it's not making that big of a uh, of a splash outside of uh, comics and uh, far right media uh, this all started with a vaccine mandate between Canada and the US uh, meaning that truckers had to be vaccinated in order to go to and fro any sign of that changing in the United States no, and it's probably a good thing. It's you know, if if nothing else, get vaccinated. Uh, all the science shows that it uh, even if you get a breakthrough infection, you're not going to uh, suffer seriously. I've gone through, I can't tell you how many uh, different uh, briefings with Fauci and others in this government, and it's the the stats are there, and it's just at this point just silly not to get vaccinated. Uh, we got about 90% of us vaccinated here, including 90% of the truckers. Um, and, you know, again, the reason for the protest is uh, mandates on all of this. Uh, are you surprised we're fighting with such a high vaccination rate? Yeah, well, look, in, in the United States, there are communities that have less than 50% yeah. vaccination. And that's the problem. It's, it's not the people in Canada that are problem. It's people down here. All right. So today, earlier on, uh, Biden, President Biden came out and again uh, talking about uh, Russia and Ukraine and is convinced something's going to happen. Give us a bit of an update. What's going on on the border? Well, in Ukraine right now, as the president said today, we keep asking the stupidest questions. Reporters keep asking him, you know, is he going to commit to troops? And he keeps saying no. And it's economic sanctions. And they never ask the really important question. And that is, why is uh, Putin ignoring what's going on and the actions made by the United States? And it's increasingly apparent that Russia is expecting China to bail them out. It, uh, and Putin keeps getting called out on the carpet by President Biden, telling, you know, informing people that there will be a false flag operation, that they will have a pretext for going into Ukraine, and that that is how uh, Russia will invade. And Russia lied about pulling back troops. So the tension level is still as it has been, and there are still there's still a lot of baloney being spewed at us 
from Putin and from uh, Russia. So it, it remains as it has been. And uh, Biden has remained committed to the fact that he's going to use economic sanctions. And it's increasingly apparent that uh, Russia may have misstepped because they don't really they've got China maybe going to bail them out for a little bit. But China is not exactly a big fan of Russia either. So that's a, a, an, a you know, being allied with him. That's a friendship that's destined to fail, most people think. And if the rest of the world is against Russia, then that's going to create tension on down the line. It's it's Biden's long game versus Putin's long game. And uh, he's not dealing with Trump now. He's dealing with somebody who has a great deal of experience in these matters. And um, there are many people who think that Biden has made the right call. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, you were saying uh, Putin hopes China will bail him out. In what way? What can China do for Putin? Well, or what is he hoping? If, well, he's hoping that he can avoid the worst of the sanctions that the rest of the world will impose right. upon him. But as I asked in the briefing room earlier this week, if you take a look at it, uh, China and Russia together are responsible for perhaps 20% of the GDP worldwide, and the rest of the world has 80% of it. So how long will China be able to bail him out from these economic sanctions uh, without causing problems for China? And that's when it would become problematic. So it's Biden playing the long game going to hoping to strangle uh, Russia, the Russian economy and playing it against China, knowing that China is probably not going to stick around for the long haul with Russia. So what does Putin want out of this? What's a, what's a win for him here? <laughs> Man, if you could figure that out, you'll be doing better than the State Department in the U.S. <laughs> no, it, it's, you know, it's, it's been a show of force, and you'll be doing much better than any reporter who's asked a question, but... It, it, that's what everyone can, I mean, ultimately he says he wants to make sure that Ukraine doesn't join NATO, but those who know Putin say that ultimately want, what he wants to do is try to reassemble the power of the Soviet Union. And of course, Ukraine was part of that. So who knows? I, and at this point, who cares? Just get him out. <laughs> White House reporter Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, host of the Just Ask the Question podcast and the book Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Have a great wake weekend and buy that book early and often. <laughs> there you go. All right. Weather and traffic on the way. It is 616. All right. Uh, I know it might be a good idea just to get the hell out of Dodge and book a vacation. Let's bring in Barry Choi, a uh, travel expert. He's with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me back so soon. Uh, so, Barry, uh, have you talked to travel agents? Uh, what's the buzz? Are people jumping on board? Are they, are they starting to book trips for the, uh, I guess, the latter part of this winter? Or are they still a bit hesitant? You know, it's not just travel agents. I think I talked to my friends, my family. Everyone's really excited. Everyone's searching. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I don't think everyone's quite committed to it yet, but I, I think they're getting very close to it. What about deals? Uh, what about airlines, which have been hurt through all this and the resorts and mm -hmm. such? Are there deals to be found, or is it at this point, uh, once the, the floodgates open, uh, you're not going to see too much of that? You know, deals is a relative term. You know, what people may or may not understand with airfares, it's dynamic pricing. And what I mean by that is when search volume goes up, prices typically also go up with it. So 
Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that with the demand right now, uh, you are going to see increased prices. That said, you know, think about the regular travel times. People who are looking to travel during March break or the summer should expect to pay more. If you're traveling off season, prices will probably go down. So it's always been about being flexible even before the pandemic and the same applies now. So uh, do you think we're going to see a strong demand towards the end of this winter or is that season uh, has that season left us? No, I think people are very excited. You know what I mean? Uh, the fact that those those uh, PCR tests are, are going away on the way back and they've already gone for a lot of countries when entering them. Uh, it's a huge incentive, especially with March break. There's still a lot of time for people to book vacations if they so desire. Uh, you, you know, right here in Ontario, we got another dumping of snow. You know, I saw that and I'll admit I was thinking about mm. the beach again. I'm sure a lot of other people were doing the same thing. And I'll admit I have been searching airfare and destinations more than I have in the last two years uh, this past week. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the next six months. And here's hoping that everyone, uh, everything stays on on uh, target and we don't get back to where we were. And uh, the travel agency or the travel business, just like every other industry, can can uh, pick up and uh, make up for some uh, lost ground. Barry Choi has been with us, travel expert. Barry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. No problem. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that is a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will Number 1 and 2 for producing today and also uh, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you. Oh, I forgot Ben, too. Big Ben Strong. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This is Brian. I think we have uh, far too many levels of government that are in there for one reason and one reason only, to get reelected, as opposed to acting on the benefit of the country and the people it serves. Um, I think we should do away with provincial license plates and have one Canada license plate, and the only slogan that could go on there would be Canada, a procrastination. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.